Shavua Tov, Chavarim. This is John Parsons with Hebrew for Christians, wishing you Shavua Tov, B'Shem Yeshua Meshichenu, a good week in Yeshua our Messiah. May this be a great week for you as you seek to know the truth of God and to honor the Lord in your Avodat Halev, your service of the heart, as you show yourself approved before God in the study and love of His Torah, His Word, His revelation in our Messiah, and in your acts of Gemilut Hasidim, the works of love, the truth that's expressed in Messiah's heart. Amen. One of my favorite passages in Scripture is Psalm 1, and it is an amazing psalm that is so encouraging for us that study and love the Torah, especially as we study it to know Yeshua our Lord better. It begins this way, Ashrei ha'ish asher lo halach batsat reshaim, happy or fortunate or blessed, is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And by counsel there it means the prevailing spirit of the age, the wisdom so-called of this world, and so on. Uv derech lo amad, and in the way of sinners this person does not stand. Uv moshav letzim lo yashav, and in the assembly of scoffers he does not sit. Ki im but in the Torah of the Lord does he delight. Uv torato yamam valayla, and in his Torah he meditates, that's groans or moans, by day and by night. And he will be like a tree planted by streams of water, that gives forth fruit in its season, and its leaves never wither away. And all that he does, all this person does, will prosper and succeed. How wonderful is that? Amen. Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3. As the Lord said to Yehoshua, or Joshua, This book of the Torah, Sefer HaTorah Hazeh, shall not depart from your mouth. In other words, it shall be in your mouth. You shall chew it. You shall eat of it. It shall nourish you and satisfy you and give you strength. But you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have sechel, that is, real insight and understanding. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That's from Yehoshua or Joshua 1, 8 and 9. Notice something interesting about this passage, by the way. Moses' successor was named Yehoshua, or Joshua, of course, and he is a picture of Yeshua. In fact, the word Yeshua, the name Yeshua, derives from the same word Yehoshua, meaning the Lord saves. As it says in Matthew one twenty one, you shall name him Yeshua, for he shall save Yasha, his people, from their sins. Now, in this verse, God is telling Yehoshua to keep Torah, to observe its ways, to know its truth, to meditate on it day and night, as King David advised and admonished us through the Holy Spirit in Psalm 1, as we just read. What's significant, I believe, as believers in Messiah is that we don't believe that the Torah was given in vain. We don't believe that God spoke these commandments to Yehoshua and to the people of Israel through David, for example, in Psalm 1, as a vain exercise, as a failed attempt to move his people. In other words, God doesn't lie. He's, he doesn't play head games. He doesn't say one thing and mean another thing. And when he told Joshua, therefore, to meditate day and night in the Torah and to store it in his heart, and to do all that is written therein, and so on. 
he was sincere. These are real words spoken to his people. David said the same thing in the Psalms. Yeshua said so in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. So the Torah is for us today. The problem has never been the Torah. It's been the sinful heart that refuses the truth of God and the direction of God. There has to be a change in the covenantal relationship we have with God so that we have a new way to live Torah. But Torah itself is unchanging. It's unchangeably reflective of God's glory and truth and holiness. There can be no love apart from justice. There can be no gospel without the message of the law. And so we need the Torah. We love it. As Paul said, we affirm it by faith in the book of Romans. So take heed, friends. So understand that these things are one. The older Brit Yashana and the Brit Chadasha, the old and new covenants, are one. And the Lord Yeshua, Jesus, is the King of Torah. He is its voice of authority, the living Torah. So again, please remember that we are not coming under the law, as some might suggest we are doing when we study Torah. Far be it. We are understanding the truth of God revealed in the scriptures in the proper order and context. And by doing so, we thereby gain insight into the message and meaning of our Messiah and his ministry to us. It's a big difference in orientation. We do not come under the law. We're not under those terms of that covenant given at Sinai where there was a swearing of the people to obey all that's written, lest there be the Tochachah judgments. On the other hand, all those things play into an account of understanding the cross and what was done there for us. Again, you can't have love without judgment. You can't have the gospel without the Torah or the law. These are one thing. So bear it in mind, friends, that when we study Torah, we are not coming under the law, but are rather taking hold of our heritage as the people of God. The Torah is part of our inheritance as God's children, as followers of Messiah, Yeshua, the King of the Jews, the living Torah. We are partakers of these ancient covenants given to Israel. It's part of our family story. It's part of who we are as God's people. So take hold of Torah, make it part of your heart, meditate in it day and night, Chavarim. Okay, I say all that by way of introduction as we begin to study this week's Torah portion called Tetzaveh, meaning you shall command. And this reading begins with God telling Moses to command the people of Israel to provide pure olive oil to feed the Ne'er Tamid, or the everlasting light of the menorah. Now the Hebrew word Tetzaveh means you shall command, though the sages note that the root word can also mean a connection, sapta, which implies that the commandments were given to unite our hearts with God. If you keep my commandments, Yeshua said, you will live in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and live in his love. This is my commandment, Yeshua said again, that you love one another as I have loved you. That's from John's Gospel, chapter 15. The heart of God's Torah and his will and desire is for you to abide or live in or remain in him and for you to know how he cleaves to you, how he abides with you. The yoke of Yeshua gives us rest. His yoke is easy. His burden is light, as it says in Matthew eleven twenty nine. So our Torah portion, Tetzaveh, is found in the book of Exodus, Exodus 27, verse 20, and it runs through Exodus 30, verse 10. Uh, before we start learning this and studying this a little bit more, let's recite the Hebrew blessing. It goes like this. Baruch Hata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Asher Kirishano B'mitzvotav 
Betzivanu La'asok Bedivrei Torah. And my translation of that from the Hebrew is, Blessed are you, Eternal One, our God, King over all, who sets us apart by his love and who wants us to be soaked up in the words of Torah. Amen. Now, I'm a firm believer in the idea that a text without a context is a pretext, which means that we should always read in context. And, and therefore, I want to take a few minutes just to orientate where we are in our Torah reading to get some bearings on the context in which we're going to be reading some of these things. So to that end, let me begin. We're in the midst of the book of Exodus, Sefer Shemot, continuing the story of how the people of Israel were delivered by God's hand during the great Passover redemption, and then were led into the desert to receive the Torah from the Lord. The Torah says that at the beginning of the third month, that is Sivan 1, the people had reached Mount Sinai and set up camp. Moses then gathered the people together and asked them whether they were willing to enter into covenant with the Lord and to keep his commandments. And when the people replied, Kol All that the Lord has said, we will do and obey. Moses offered sacrifices and told the people to prepare for the great revelation of God in three days. On Sivan 6, exactly seven weeks after the exodus from Egypt, that's 49 days after the great Passover, the Lord descended upon the mountain with fire, smoke, shofar blasts, and a great earthquake as the Ten Commandments were uttered. And this is an event we recall every year during the holiday of Shavuot, or weeks, called Pentecost in the Christian tradition. And that commemorates the great revelation of God given both at Sinai and later at Mount Zion, after the time of Yeshua's resurrection. We read about that in Acts chapters 1 and 2. After the revelation of the Ten Commandments, God called Moses up to Sinai again, this time for 40 days and nights, to teach him the details of the commandments and how they were to be applied. When he descended and told the people all the words of the Lord and his rules, they answered again with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. Moses then wrote down all the words of the Lord. This refers to the scroll that Moses wrote called Sefer Habrit, which is a subset of the bigger Torah. Namely, it, it gives the terms of the covenant given to the people of Israel at Sinai. Then Moses rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of Mount Sinai and made 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. Moses then made several sacrifices and peace offerings to the Lord. And he gathered the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw on the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant, that's the Sefer Habrit he wrote, and read it in the hearing of the people. And again, they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. Upon hearing this, Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. And there they ate a covenant ratification meal to celebrate the agreement between Israel and the Lord. After this, they all descended the mountain, but Moses was called back up to receive the Ten Commandments written on tablets of stone. Now, no, Moses has been going up and down the mountain several times here. And on the Hebrew for Christians website, I have an article that I wrote called uh, The Aliot of Moses. He went up and down the mountain, I think, seven or eight times. And we tend to think of it as a one or two time deal. Well, the first time, and then the tablets are broken, then he goes up again. But that's not the case. There were several ascents and several descents. And you can find that article. Look under um, the Aliot of Moses and you'll find it. On the seventh day, though, uh, while Moses was on the mountain, God called to him out of the midst of the cloud. And Moses entered the cloud and went further on up. And in this case, Moses was not given further details about the Mishpatim or rules of Torah, but rather was given a great vision. 
namely the vision of the Mishkan or the tabernacle, a great altar and a place of holiness and fellowship with the Lord that would represent the divine presence with the people as they made their sojourn through the desert en route to the promised land. Now after Moses descended the mountain after this great vision, he appealed to the people to give contributions, truma, to help build this sacred tent called the Mishkan that would symbolize his presence among the people and provide an altar that recalled God's deliverance of the people by means of the blood of the Passover lamb. This is called the Korban Tamid. We'll learn about it a little bit later. Upon the mountain, during the vision, God had given Moses the pattern by which the Mishkan, or tabernacle, and all its furnishings were to be made. First, an Ark of the Covenant, and its cover called the Kaporet, would occupy the innermost chamber called the Holy of Holies, or Kodesh HaKodeshim, with an adjoining chamber called the Holy Place, or HaKodesh, that was separated by the Parochet, a beautiful hanging rug that separated the Holy Place, Kadosh, from the Holy of Holies, Kadosh HaKodeshim. Inside the Holy Place, a special table called the Shulchan held unleavened bread representing the twelve tribes of Israel and God's provision for his people, as well as the holy menorah or lampstand that would illuminate the Mishkan. God gave precise dimensions of the tent and with the added instructions to separate the Holy of Holies with this parochet that was embroidered with beautiful images of cherubim and so on. The entire tent was to have a wooden frame covered by colored fabrics and the hide of rams and goats. Outside the tent, an outer court was defined that would include a copper sacrificial altar and water basin. By the way, there was no way to get into the holy place or the holy of holies apart from going past the altar. The altar is the first step, followed by the water basin. So there's the sacrifice and then the washing of the word. At any rate, the outer court was to be enclosed by a fence made with fine linen on silver poles with hooks of silver and brass. And the tabernacle itself is a beautiful image of God's desire to habitate with his people and to provide a way of access to his divine presence and to enjoy fellowship with him. Okay, so now our Torah reading for this week, Parsha Tetzaveh, continues the description of this tabernacle, though the focus begins to shift to those who will serve in it, namely the priests of Israel. First, Moses was instructed to tell the Israelites to bring pure olive oil for the lamps of the menorah, which the priests were to kindle every morning in the holy place. Next, God commanded Moses to ordain Aaron and his sons as the priests of Israel and described the priestly garments they would wear while serving in the tabernacle. All the priests were to wear four garments, linen breeches, tunics, sashes, and turbans, but in addition to these, the Kohen Gadol, or the high priest, was to wear a blue robe decorated with pomegranates and golden bells. Over this robe, an ephod, that is, an apron, woven of gold, blue, purple, and crimson, and upon the ephod was attached a breastplate inlaid with precious stones inscribed with the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. Finally, the high priest would wear a golden plate engraved with the words, Holy to the Lord, upon the front of his turban. The priests were to be ordained in a special seven-day ceremony that involved washing, dressing, and anointing them with oil and blood, followed by the offering of sacrifices. The priests were further instructed to present burnt offerings twice a day upon the copper altar, and the portion ends with a description of the golden altar upon which incense was offered twice a day by the priests when the menorah lamps were serviced. In addition, the blood of atonement was to be placed on its corners once a year during the famous Yom Kippur ritual, as we'll learn about later. So that provides an overview of where we're at as we begin to read our Torah portion for this week, Tetzaveh. So let's get started with that. 
So our Torah portion this week begins with the Lord telling Moses to command the people to bring pure olive oil for the lamps of the menorah, which the priests were to kindle every day in the holy place. The portion begins this way. I'm in Exodus 27, verse 20. You shall command, there's our word tetzaveh, the people of Israel that they bring to you pure olive oil, shemen zeitzach, crushed for the light, katit ma'or, to raise up an eternal light, ner tamid. In the tent of meeting, this is the Ohel Moed, another name for the holy place, outside the veil or the parochet, that's before the testimony, that is the Ark of the Covenant, located within the Holy of Holies. Aaron and his sons shall tend to it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statue forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. What's interesting about this passage is that the commandment to offer up the continual lamp occurs before the tabernacle and even the menorah was made. God's light must shine first, even before we can direct our worship to him. The light of his presence precedes even the tent of meeting itself. Now, according to Jewish tradition, only the first few drops of shaman or oil pressed from an olive, zait, were to be used for the menorah, since these were considered the first fruits of the olives and also the brightest of oils. The purest oil was obtained by a process of crushing for the light, katit ma'or, as I mentioned earlier. The Hebrew word for pure is zach, which refers to this clear oil, the clearest oil derived from squeezing out or crushing the very first drop from the choicest of olives. The purest oil was obtained by a process of crushing for the light. Again, katit ma'or, it says in the text we just read, which symbolizes the light of the world, the one crushed for our iniquities, the man of sorrows, ish machobot who offered himself up for our healing and illumination. Look at Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 5. Some things are only seen through the process of tribulation, breaking, and surrender. When we kindle this lamp, we're able to see the truth. We perceive how God's heart was crushed for the sake of our salvation. The menorah was lit every afternoon and would burn throughout the night. Every morning, the priest would enter the Kodesh section of the Mishkan to empty the ashes from the lamps and insert new wicks. However, a midrash says that the westernmost light would remain burning, which was then used to light all the other six lamps. This is similar to the way the shamash candle was used to light the other candles in Hanukkah. Only after all the other lamps were lit would he blow out the shamash and clear its ashes and rekindle it. So our Torah reading this week begins with that commandment to keep the light burning. God's first words of creation were, Yehi or, let there be light just as the menorah serves as a picture of the radiant tree of life. The heart looks through the eye, and how we choose to see is ultimately a spiritual decision. Yeshua said this, If your eye is single, haplas, that means sincere or focused, your whole body will be filled with light. That's from Matthew 6.22. In other words, when we see rightly, we will behold the radiance of God shining within us. We're enabled to see by means of the revelation of the word. That's why the menorah was described before it was created. The entrance of your word gives light, it says in Psalm 119.130. But we must kindle the light within our hearts. We must open our eyes to its brilliance. We must choose to see the divine presence with eyes of the heart that are being enlightened, it says in Ephesians 1.8. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Yeshua the Messiah. Look at 2 Corinthians 4.6. Amen. As Yeshua said, let your light shine that you may glorify your Father who is in heaven. The portion now continues. Then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. 
Let me interject something here. Not all Israelites are priests, of course. They have to be of the tribe of Levi, but not all Levites are priests. Only the sons of Aaron are priests. As we'll learn later, there are four separate sub-clans of the tribe of Levi, and only one of those are Kohanim, or the priests of Israel, namely those direct descendants of Aaron. The reading continues, And you shall make holy garments, big day kadosh, for Aaron your brother, for glory and for beauty, lechavod ulatiferet. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I'm filling with a spirit of skill, ruach chokmah, it's a spirit of wisdom, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breast piece, called a choshen in Hebrew, a vest, or an ephod, a robe, me'il, a coat of checkered work, katonet tashbets, a turban, mitznefet, and a sash, or an avnet. They shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine twined linen. Okay, I'm in 28, verse 6. And they shall make the ephod of gold, ephod zahav, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and of fine twined linen, skillfully worked. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its edges, so that it may be joined together. And the skillfully woven band on it shall be made like it, and be one piece with it, of gold, blue, purple and scarlet yarn and fine twined linen you shall take two onyx stones and engrave the, on them the names of the sons of israel six of their names on one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other in the order of their birth as a jeweler engraves signets so shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of israel you shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree and you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod, as stones of remembrance, Avnei Zikaron, for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. You shall make settings of gold filigree and two chains of pure gold twisted like cords, and you shall attach the corded chains to the settings. The onyx stones attached to the shoulder pieces of the high priest's vest, or the ephod, and the twelve precious stones arrayed on the breastplate that we'll read about in a minute, the Hoshan, were inscribed with the names of the tribes of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance, as we just read. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastplate of judgment upon his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. We'll read that in just a minute in verse 29 of this chapter. The sages comment that just as a father carries his young child on his shoulders, or a shepherd his lamb, so the high priest carried his people before the Lord in intercession. Likewise, at the cross, Yeshua carried our names on his shoulders, bearing the burden of our sins, as he cried out before the Father. As our great high priest, Kohen Gadol, of the new covenant, Yeshua bore the judgment of the people upon his heart as he made intercession for them. Look at Isaiah 53, verse 12, and Romans 8:34. Our portion continues here. You shall make a breastplate or breastpiece of judgment, choshen mishpat in Hebrew, in skilled work. In the style of the ephod shall you make it, a blue, gold, purple, scarlet yarn, and fine twine linen shall you make it. You shall set it in four rows of precious stones. A row of sardius, topaz, and carbuncle shall be the first row, 
Second row, emerald, sapphire, and diamond. Third row, a jacinth, an agate, and amethyst. The fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree. There shall be twelve stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the twelve tribes. You shall make for the breastpiece twisted chains like cords of pure gold, and they shall bind the breastpiece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue, so that it may lie on the skillfully woven band of the ephod, so that the breastplate shall not come loose from the ephod. In other words, these things were tied together. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastplate of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place, the Kadosh, to bring them to continual remembrance before the Lord. And in the breastplate of judgment you shall put the Urim Betumim, the Urim and Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus shall Aaron bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. Now the koshin, or breastplate of judgment, as it's called, or breastpiece of judgment, was worn over the ephod, and it contained two special gemstones called the Urim the Tumim, lights and perfections. You can read about that here in Exodus 28, also in Leviticus 8, in Numbers 27, and Deuteronomy 33. Now these stones were used to discern the will of God in some cases. Look at 1 Samuel 14, 41, 28, 6, Ezra 2, 63, and Nehemiah 7.65, some have said that the Shekinah glory would cause the two stones to light up and shine upon the Abnechoshin, the twelve gemstones in the Choshen Mishpat that represented the twelve tribes of Israel. As mentioned, the Choshen was arranged with these four rows of precious stones. Each stone was inscribed with six letters representing the names of the tribes of Israel for a total of 72 letters. Since each stone was inscribed with the name of the tribe of Israel, the letters would be illuminated on the Hoshin to reveal answers to questions posed by the high priest. So some have said that it was the Shekinah light that did this, or it was the light combined with the light of the menorah. But in either case, it was meant sort of to be a way of discerning God's will by lot or by actually getting refracted answers by the light lighting up letters on the that's very fascinating, isn't it? Our portion continues discussing the robe for the ephod. It begins verse 31 here in chapter 28. You shall make the robe of the ephod, ma'il ha'ephod, all of blue, tehelet. It shall have an opening for the head in the middle of it with a woven binding around the opening like the opening in a garment so that it may not tear. On its hem you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarn around its hem with bells of gold, pamone zahav, between them, a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate, and so on, all around the hem of the robe. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out, so that he does not die. Okay, according to Jewish tradition, the bells were worn on the high priest's coat in order to scare off any holy angels that were serving in the Kodesh section of the Mishkan. Apparently, God didn't want any of the angels there to be critical of the high priest as he performed his duties. Another tradition states that the bells were used so that the Israelites remember to pray for the priest as he was serving on their behalf. This most particularly during the great Yom Kippur Avodah, where the high priest would go in before the 
Holy of Holies, and there offer blood on the Kaporet, or the cover of the Ark of the Covenant, only once per year, uttering the great name of the Lord in the darkness of the cloud. So this was a very sacred time and a very dangerous time, if you will, that the people would pray for the priest during this Yom Kippur ritual. However, another way to understand the bells intimates something really wonderful. And it, that is the robe with the bells, shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard, Benishmakolo, when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out so he does not die. Note that the phrase, so it shall be heard, Benishmakolo, can refer not only to the ringing of the bells, but to the voice of the Lord. The priests served barefoot in the sanctuary, so a holy hush was always observed there. It was God's voice that was to be heard through the bells, a soft call to hear and to return to him. The sound of the bells teaches us that we need quietness, especially within the heart, to properly hear God speaking kol dememach daka, that is in a still small voice, as sometimes translated, or the sound of a very low whisper. As Elijah the prophet heard the still small voice of the Lord kol dememach daka, as we read in 1 Kings 19.12. All right, continuing with our reading, I'm in Exodus chapter 28, verse 36. You shall make a plate of pure gold, seat zahab tahor, and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord, kodesh ladonai. And you shall fasten it on the turban, or the mitznefet, by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead, that they may be accepted before the Lord. You shall weave the coat in checkered work, the katonin tashbates, of fine linen, and you shall make a turban, mitznefet, of fine linen, and you shall make a sash, that's an abnet, which is a long linen belt, embroidered with needlework. For Aaron's sons you shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make them for glory and for beauty. This is the second time that phrase has come up, and it denotes the idea of honoring or respecting the divine presence by wearing holy and set-apart clothing. And you shall put them on Aaron your brother and on his sons with him, and shall anoint them. From that phrase we get the word Messiah, anointed. And you're going to ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. You shall make for them linen trousers, miknasim, to cover their naked flesh. They shall reach from the hips to the thighs, and they shall be an Aaron and his sons when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, lest they bear guilt and die. This shall be a statue forever for him and for his offspring after him. Notice that in this description of the big day konim, the, the, the priest's garments, we're not hearing anything about shoes or slippers. In other words, the priest ministered in the Mishkan and later at the temple barefoot. Note further that the high priest was required to perform the Yom Kippur Abudah ritual alone while wearing humble attire, divested of his glory and in complete solitude. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out, it says in Leviticus 16:17. The Hebrew text literally says, No Adam, no man or person or thing shall be in the tent, which suggests that something more than the natural man is needed for divine intercession. 
And just as Moses alone approached God in the thick clouds at Sinai to receive the revelation of the altar as the mediator of the former or older covenant, so Yeshua, the mediator of the new covenant, went through his severest agony on the cross as the darkness covered the earth. He was in the thick, dark cloud, uttering the holy name of God, his Father, and there made intercession for us, shedding his own blood and placing it upon the heavenly corporate before the throne of glory. Our portion then describes the consecration of the priests. This is in Exodus chapter 29. It says this, Now this is what you shall do to them, that is the priest, to consecrate them, that they may serve me. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish, that word is tamim, meaning perfectly formed or without defect, and unleavened bread, that's lechem matzah, unleavened cakes mixed with oil and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them of fine wheat flour, solet chetim. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket and bring the bull and the two rams. You shall then bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting, petachohel moed, and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments and put Aaron, put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you set the turban on his head, and put the holy seats or crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil, Shemen HaMishichah, and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring him and his sons, and put coats on them. And you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes, and bind caps on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus shall you ordain Aaron and his sons. Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his son shall lean their hands on the head of the bull. This is called semicha. The leaning on of hands representing identification or transference or an exchange. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar. This is karnot amisbeach with your finger. And the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar. And you shall take all the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver, and the two kidneys with the fat that's on them, and burn them on the altar. But the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It's a sin offering, or chatat. Then you shall take one of the rams, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram, and you shall kill the ram and take its blood and throw it against the sides of the altar. You shall cut the ram into pieces and wash its entrail and its legs and put them with its pieces and its head, and burn the whole ram on the altar. This is a burnt offering, or an olah to the Lord, a pleasing aroma, reach nechach, to the Lord. Then you shall take the other ram, and Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head of that ram, and you shall kill the ram, and take part of its blood, and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron, and on the tips of the right ears of his sons, and on the thumbs of their right hands, and on the great toes of their right feet, and throw the rest of the blood against the sides of the altar. I hope you see a connection here between Yeshua, who was pierced in his hands and feet, and the holiness of his sanctity as our anointed priest of the better covenant. Then you shall take part of the blood that's on the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and his sons' garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy, Kadosh, and his sons and his sons' garments with him. 
You should also take the fat from the ram and the fat tail and the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that's on them and the right thigh, for it's a ram of ordination, ale me'ulim, and one loaf of bread and one cake of bread made with oil and one wafer out of the basket of unleavened bread that's before the Lord. And you shall put these on the palms of Aaron and the palms of his sons and wave them for a wave offering. This word is tenufah, wave offering before the Lord. Then you shall take them from their hands and burn them on the altar on top of the burnt offering as a pleasing aroma before the Lord. It's an offering made by fire. Note here the imagery of these priests with, with sacrificial blood on their hands and feet, anointed with oil, lifting up bread. It's an amazing picture of Yeshua and his ministry as our great high priest. Next, you shall take the breast of the ram of ordination. In Hebrew, but the word breast here is very interesting. It's chazay, and it comes from a verb chazah, which means to be shown a vision. It's a prophetic word. We get the word chazon from this. So it's a prophetic word of this ram of ordination. And there's information about this very special ram on the Hebrew for Christians website. So please go there to take a look. Returning to the text, you shall take the breast of the ram of ordination and wave it as a wave offering, tenafah, before the Lord, and it shall be your portion. And you shall consecrate the breast of the wave offering that's waved and the thigh of the priest's portion that is contributed from the ram of ordination, from what was Aaron's and his sons. It shall be for Aaron and his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel, for it is a contribution. It shall be a contribution from the people of Israel from their peace offerings, shalamim, their contribution to the Lord. The holy garments of Aaron shall be for his sons after him. They shall be anointed in them and ordained in them. The son who succeeds him as priest, who comes in the tent of meeting to minister in the holy place, shall wear them seven days. You shall take the ram of ordination, again, ale meulim, and roast its flesh in a holy place. And Aaron and his sons shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that's in the basket in the entrance of the tent of meeting. They shall eat these things which atonement, kafar, was made at their ordination and consecration. But an outsider shall not eat of them, because they are holy. And if any of the flesh for the ordination or any of the bread remains, you shall burn the remainders with fire. It shall not be eaten because it's holy. Thus shall you do to Aaron and to his sons, according to all that I have commanded you. Through seven days you shall ordain them, and every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering, chetat, for atonement, that's kafar. And we get the word kippur from that, yom kippur. Also, you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it, and shall anoint it to consecrate it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it, and the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. Now, on the Hebrew for Christians website, I have information about the concept of Kedushah or holiness that you might find of interest if you're following this, this discussion. The idea of holy is not the same thing as clean. There's a differentiation here between unclean, clean, and holy. And then there's a further category which is outside of both or all that, the profane. So please take a look. This is an article called The Concept of Holiness or Leviticus and Holiness on the Hebrew for Christians website, and that will provide some more information about the technical side of this concept of holiness and how it works in the blood rituals of the Mishkan.
Now this chapter ends with a discussion of the Korban Tamid, a daily offering of the lamb, a defect-free lamb. It begins in verse 38 of this chapter. Now this is what you shall offer daily, Tamid, on the altar. Two lambs, a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth measure of fine flour mingled with beaten oil and wine for a drink offering, Nesach. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight, and shall offer with it a grain offering, with its drink offering, as in the morning, for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering, Olat Tamid, throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak with you there. Note in this connection that the sacrifice of the lamb with matzah and wine is the first thing that is going to be seen as you come into the Mishkan to have fellowship with God. It is the foundation for all sacrifice that's going to be offered is the first sacrifice of the Lamb of God. Again, it commemorates the Passover and it foretells the cross of Messiah. The reading continues, There I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. Ani Adonai Elohechem, I am the Lord their God. All right, Chavarim, we are at the end of our Torah reading for this week. We just have a few verses left that describe what's called the Altar of Incense, Mizbech HaKatorit, and it begins in chapter 30 of Exodus. You shall make an altar on which to burn incense. This is Be'ach HaKatorit. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its breadth. It shall be square. Two cubits shall be its height. Its horn shall be one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, Zahav Dahor. Its top and its sides and its horn shall be of pure gold. And you shall make a crown of gold around it. And you shall make two golden rings for it. Under its crown, on two opposite sides of it, you shall make them, and they shall be holders for the poles with which to carry it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put it in front of the parochet that is before the Ark of the Covenant, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony where I meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense, that's Ketorit, on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, the, the menorah, he shall burn it, and when Aaron sets up the menorah at twilight, he shall burn it again, a regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering, and you shall not pour out a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. With the blood of the sin offering of atonement, that's referring to Yom Kippur, he shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. And so ends our Torah reading for this week, Chavarim. So I hope that you have hung in there with me as you've been listening and thinking about these things. The altar of incense, this Mizbeach HaKator, was a second altar of the Mishkan. The first, of course, was the large Mizbeach HaOlah, the altar, the copper altar for animal sacrifices in the outer court, and upon which every day was offered Korban Tamid, a defect-free lamb that was offered every evening and morning together with bread and wine. Like other furnishings of the Mishkan, the altar of incense was constructed of acacia wood, overlaid with pure beaten gold and placed in the Kodesh section of the structure, right next to the menorah and shulchan, perhaps right next to the parochet, 
that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. So during the Yom Kippur Avodah, the high priest would burn a great deal of this incense and a censer and bring the censer in behind the parochet that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And there he would do his blood ritual work of shaking or sprinkling the blood from the sacrificial goat upon the kaport or the covering of the Ark of the Covenant and there make atonement for Israel. So this is a very significant furnishing of the Mishkan. It's, it's kind of strange that it's not really put with the description of the other articles of the Mishkan earlier that we read, but here it is. And the Torah sometimes does that. It jumps around in its topics, and I don't think it's illogical. I think the Holy Spirit inspired it to be written in this way for God's own reasons. Metaphorically, the altar of incense represents prayer, the ascending aroma and cries of the heart of God's people. And in particular, the yearning and prayer of Yeshua, who is the offering of sweet-smelling savor for God forever and ever. So blessed be his name forever. So that ends our Torah reading for this week, Parshat Tetzaveh. And now I just want to raise some discussion questions to help us think a little bit more about this particular portion of Scripture. First, the commandment to keep the lamp of the menorah burning at all times is called Ner Tamid, an eternal lamp. In many synagogues today, a ritual light called the Ner Tamid is set above the Aron. That's the place where the Ark of the Scrolls are stored, in case you don't know. And that's meant to symbolize the presence of God. Discuss the idea that every Jew must light the Ner Tamid in his or her own heart. This question is somewhat related to the great Shaviti of Psalm 16, verse 8, where King David said, I have set the Lord always before me. This setting of the Lord, this opening of the heart, this making a sanctuary within you is what's being discussed here. How are you opening up to the divine presence in your life? How are you becoming more awake, more alive, more sensing his presence in your daily life? So that's really what this question's about. Another discussion question. The high priest's breastplate contained a pouch holding two special gemstones called the Urim Betumen or the Urim and Thummim, usually translated as lights and perfections. According to the Targum Yonatan, when a matter was brought to the high priest for settlement, he would sometimes hold the Urim before the menorah, and the Shekinah would irradiate various letters inscribed on the Hoshan to reveal the will of God. Do you think this is a form of divinely sanctioned divination? Why or why not? A third question. According to Hasidism, the tabernacle is a metaphor for attaining personal inner sanctity. The detailed building instructions point to the soul building project. The Ner Tamid points to the need for the soul's illumination. The garments of the high priest point to particular areas where we need to exercise sanctity. For example, the turban represents the call to think rightly, and so on. Shifting the metaphor, the ark represents the brain. The cherubim represents God's still small voice. The menorah represents the eyes. The table represents the mouth, and the altar, the incense, represents the nose. The bronze wash basin or laver represents the hands, and the altar represents the stomach. Does this have any merit, do you think, in your thinking theologically about these things? Is the tabernacle a revelation of the tree of life, as some have said, or is it a revelation of the Son of Man, God the Son? And if so, connect the various components of the tabernacle to a theology of understanding the Incarnation.
A fourth question. Olives were intended to be beaten for the light or crushed for the light. The Jewish people are compared to an olive tree because they yield their oil or virtue only when crushed. Discuss how affliction can be a means of attaining a testimony for the light in your life. Another question. The role of the priest was to bring people close to God. The word korban or sacrifice means being brought near, karov. Aaron wore the breastplate of judgment over his heart, as we read about earlier, and as a token of the weight of people's suffering. His role was to represent the heart of the people before God. So how do you understand Yeshua as your priest before the Father? Another topical question. Why was Aaron chosen to be the high priest of Israel and not Moses? Was it because Moses forfeited the right during the encounter with God at the burning bush? Look at Exodus 4, 14 through 16. What do we make sense of the statement in Psalm 99, verse 6? Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. Moreover, how did Moses understand the laws of sacrifice before the revelation at Sinai? In what ways did Moses function as Israel's first great high priest, and how does that prefigure Yeshua? Here's another question. The Ark of the Covenant is likened to Kiseh HaKavod, or the Throne of Glory. The Ark itself was composed of three separate and overlapping boxes, a wooden box covered by a gold box with a, another gold box inside. The outermost box also had a border or crown called a zare that would hold the cover, the kaporet, in place. Moreover, the tent of the tabernacle was composed of three parts. You have the Holy of Holies and two divisions within the holy place. Despite the various articles of the tabernacle, it's called one, echad. So discuss how the pattern of the tabernacle reveals the nature of God and his redemptive mission to humanity. Do you see evidence of Hashilush HaKadosh, the three-in-one God, the triunity of God in the Mishkan? According to the Jewish sage, the Malbim, the menorah is said to reveal the light of the Torah. These are sometimes called the 49 gates to Torah. The seven branches represent the seven worlds of Genesis 1-1. The 11 fruits represent the 11 words of Exodus 1-1. The nine flowers represent the nine words of Leviticus 1-1. The 22 cups represent the 22 words of Deuteronomy 1-1. So what about the book of Numbers? Well, the, the 17 words of Numbers 1-1 refer to the 17 tefachim, or hand's breadths, of the menorah's height. Discuss the symbolism of the menorah, especially that it also stood on a threefold stand, three-in-one stand, and discuss how it reveals Yeshua's words that he is the light of the world. Do you see Yeshua as an embodiment of the menorah, the tree of life, as it's sometimes also called? I want to close out this time with you by considering something. Our Torah for this week, Parshat Tetzaveh, describes the ceremony of consecration to the priesthood. We are chosen to be a kingdom of priests, a set-apart people, and a light to the nations. You can read that in Exodus 19.6, Isaiah 42.6, and 1 Peter 2.9. Note that the very first responsibility given to the priest was to care for the Ner Tamid, the light of the menorah which represents our consciousness of the divine presence. Look at Psalm 18.28 and 36.9. The challenge we all face is to remain in the light as God is in the light, and not to be seduced by the world of fleeting appearances. God's eternal light radiates through all things. We know that from Isaiah 6.3, for example, it says, Holy, holy, holy is Adonai Tzavah, the whole world is filled with his glory. 
just as the great Yehi Or, let there be light, is the first word spoken to creation. Look at Genesis 1.3. To be a priest means being so filled with the truth that you radiate inner light and that you glorify your Father in heaven. That's what Jesus meant in Matthew 5.16. That's how we draw others to the truth, by receiving the beauty of the Lord and reflecting it back. Psalm 27 verse 4. Of course, being a witness to the light, that is being a priest, does not mean you're a perfect person who walks about with a blissed-out attitude despite the various trials and tests that are common to everyone in this life. No, we all still sin, and we therefore need to confess the truth of our condition to abide in the light. Look at 1 John 1, 9 and James 5.16, for example. Like everything else in Scripture, here we encounter paradox. As Yeshua said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the ones who mourn. For they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Yea, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's from 1 Corinthians 1, 27-29. The Hebrew word for priest, that is Cohen, may come from the word ken, meaning yes, and the word kivun, meaning to direct or lead, implying that a priest helps direct a person toward affirming the reality and truth of God, saying yes to God, saying amen. The role of a priest is to draw us nearer to God then, but how is that possible if the mediator cannot genuinely understand our sorrows and struggles? What draws others to God is his love, but how can we come to believe in that love were it not for the priesthood of the leper, the priesthood of the outcast, the priesthood of the reject. Even so, Yeshua was afflicted with our infirmities and therefore sympathizes with our brokenness and our frailty. Look at Hebrews 4.16. Yeshua is our leper Messiah, the king of all those that are broken, the healer of all those of shattered hearts. Blessed be he. As a priest of brokenness, you are called to be a wounded healer, and you can testify of God's saving grace and love for you despite your sorrow, anger, weakness, failures. Accepting God's compassion for you just as you are allows you to show grace and kindness to others who are also hurting, and therefore you can serve as a priest of God. So be encouraged, friends, for the commandment is a lamp, and the Torah is light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life, it says in Proverbs 6.23. Here we may understand the reproofs of discipline as the ongoing process of consciously turning away from darkness, of fear, of anger, and so on, to behold the divine light. We all have to start here, after all. The way of life is teshiva, repentance, turning to God, which is a painful process to the lower nature, but it's necessary to walk in the light. Confession brings light into our hearts, and at the end of our struggle is healing in life. So may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. Selah. So again, dear friends, this has been an interesting Torah reading, and I hope that it's been encouraging and edifying and upbuilding for you. Please remember Hebrew for Christians in your prayers. This is John speaking. I need your prayers. I, I'm one of the walking wounded who, who reaches out to God for his daily breath and everything else. I am completely impoverished. I have nothing to give other than what God gives me by his kindness and I really need you in my life to be helping me continue in ministry. So thank you for being there. Those of you that have responded to that call, thank you so much. 
And I do pray that we would be bearers of God's light and his name to this dark world. We are running out of time. I am convinced of that. I don't know. I have young kids. I, I could be 50 years out yet. I don't know. But it certainly seems as if everything is aligned. All the table has been set. The theater props are in place, if you will, for the great end of the age. Everything's sort of there, just waiting for the final sort of cataclysmic things to begin happening. And so please take hope. Look to the Lord while there's still time. Repent. If there's things in your heart still blocking you, pray for deliverance. Ask God for healing and light. It will come. It comes to all those who call upon him in the truth. He is faithful. He's loving. He's kind. He's wonderful. May his name be exalted forever, and may you be blessed in the Lord. Now let me end with a great Hebrew blessing, putting the name of God upon his people. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his shalom, his healing love. Hashem Yeshua, Meshichenu, Huhadon, in the name of Jesus our Messiah, He is the Lord. Shavua Tov, Chodesh Tov, every blessing in Messiah, be it on you, by faith, receive it now. Amen. information, visit us at www.hebrewforchristians.com or Google Learn Hebrew Free.